Good morning, Journey. So a couple of years ago, my daughter came home from her sixth grade class, and she kind of shook my, my world a little bit. She kind of shook my worldview a little bit, because when I was growing up, um, I didn't have very many imaginary friends, but I had some cartoon friends, like DuckTales with um, Uncle Scrooge and Huey, Dewey, and Louie and his number one dime. Like DuckTales, I watched a lot. I watched the Smurfs a little bit, but my favorite cartoon was Scooby-Doo, like scooby and his friends, like I was tight with Scooby-Doo. He was a childhood friend of mine. And Casey, my daughter, came home a few years ago from one of her D.A.R.E. programs. And she said, Dad, guess what I learned about Scooby-Doo today from the D.A.R.E. officer? And I said, what would you learn about Scooby? Like, Scooby's awesome. What would the D.A.R.E. officer be teaching about Scooby-Doo? And she's like, well, he and Shaggy were potheads. And I said, what? <laughs> like, what do they teach you at that school? And she's like, yeah, did you know that Shaggy had a girlfriend named Mary Jane? And that's another word for marijuana. And I was like, no, I actually didn't know that. And she's like, and did you know they always wanted Scooby snacks? Because when you smoke pot, you get the munchies and you want to snack on stuff. And I thought, like, you're in sixth grade. You should not know that you get the munchies or that Scooby snacks were a result of smoking pot. And she's like, yeah, and he showed us a bunch of pictures of like yeah, drug paraphernalia snuck into like some of the scenes of the show. And as she was telling me that, what I was hearing in my head as she was telling me that Scooby was a pothead was, here, here's what I was hearing in my head, row, row. Like, like, because every time something would go wrong, like when, when Fred and Velma and Daphne would decide they were racing into the haunted house instead of out of it, Scooby would always say like, row, row, raggy. Like when he said row, row, raggy, like things were going bad. And as we enter the third week of this series on whispers, this series where we're trying to learn how to hear the voice of God. I am learning from our people, as I'm hearing from you the last few weeks, that there is this like rut row reality. There, there's this bad news in the midst of this good series. And it's this, here's, here's what I'm hearing from you and what I'm seeing in scripture. Sometimes the power of God isn't enough to help the people of God put hope in the plan of God. Like sometimes the power of God, even when God is speaking, sometimes the power of God isn't enough to help the people of God have hope in the plan of God. That's the purpose of this whole series, to teach you how to hear from God so you can have hope in the plan of God. The, the purpose of this series is to help you understand the will of God so you can have hope for that. The purpose of this series is to teach you how to hear from God so you can hear his direction in your life for things that are upcoming in your life. The purpose of this series is to give you comfort in times of hurting so that God can speak directly to you. The purpose of this series is so that in the darkest times, you might experience a little bit of hope because God is speaking. But what happens when life hurts too much? To hear from God. Like what happens when it, I don't want to say it doesn't matter if God is speaking, but what happens when the pain is so loud that you can't hear God's voice? It just hurts too much to hear. Or maybe you are hearing a little bit from God. Maybe you're remembering a little bit of scripture. Maybe you're hearing a little bit of the message, but your life hurts too bad to really believe any of it. Like you figure it may be true for somebody else, but just not you because it just hurts too much to hear. We're going to try to spend today and next Sunday answering that very question. What do we do when it hurts too much to hear? Because we have some people in our church right now who desperately need to hear from God and want to hear from God. But unless they can learn to turn the hurt down and turn God up, it's going to be difficult 
to hear that voice. And we're going to learn this the next two weeks from one of my favorite people in the entire Bible. His name's Elijah. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we're going to meet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Take out your, your sermon notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along or fire up your Journey Church International app on your phone or tablet. You can take notes. Everything on the screen will be there in your handheld device so that you can email it to yourself once you're done. But in 1 Kings chapter 19, we meet Elijah, and here's what you need to know. We spent the last two weeks with Samuel. Now we jump to Elijah, and here's what you need to know. From Samuel to Elijah, we, we, we've just moved 250 years, but without much progress, like spiritually. Nothing has happened in 250 years. We go from Samuel to Elijah, 250 years in real time, but without much spiritual progress. You say, well, how, how much is 250 years? Is that really a long time? Well, 250 years ago was 1767. Nine years before anyone would write in the Declaration of Independence that like these United States would be anything. So 250 years without spiritual progress. If we would say like pre-George Washington to now, if nothing had changed in America spiritually, and some would say maybe it's changed for the worse, we would say that's a problem. So we've got 250 years in Israeli history without much spiritual progress. For those of you who are kind of Bible nerds, let me walk you through the timeline of it. Samuel was born in about 1100 BC. One of his main jobs was to institute the monarchy or the kings of Israel. In 1050 BC, he anointed Saul to be king of Israel. Saul would reign for 40 years. Then he would anoint a shepherd who became a warrior by the name of David in 970 BC to be king. David would reign for 40 years. Then in, nine, in 970, he would anoint, uh, in 1010, he would anoint David. In 970, he would anoint his son Solomon. He would be king for 40 years. The first three reigned for 40 years. And then Solomon's son basically lost the kingdom. There was a civil war which led to this enduring border war between Israel was the northern kingdom, uh, Judah was the southern kingdom, and that lasted from 932, uh, 932 about 722 BC, nearly 200 years. It was right in the middle of those 200 years that we meet Elijah. Onto the scene comes the prophet Elijah, and he comes to confront the king of Israel. His name was Ahab. His wife's name was Jezebel. They were not good people spiritually. He came to confront them around approximately 850 BC, for leading Israel away from God. But his message was the exact same message that Samuel gave to Eli. Remember, Eli was running Israel 250 years earlier in the wrong way. The message was the same. Samuel went to Eli and said, basically, you're supposed to be leading this country to love God. You're leading them away from God. Elijah showed up and said the exact same thing to Ahab. You're supposed to be as the king of Israel leading this country to love God. You're leading them away from God. So basically, Elijah shut down Wall Street. You say, Israel had a Wall Street? Not really, but they had an economy. They had an economy that was really, really strong. They had an economy that was based basically on farming um, and on farmland and on exporting crops all over the Middle East. And things were going good until Elijah showed up. And Elijah showed up and told Ahab, God has blessed you with all of these crops so that you could give to him and so that you could help people who had nothing. And you've kept it all for yourself. The same message Samuel gave Eli. So he said, God wants you to know he's turning the faucet off. There's going to be a drought on the land. Until you realize it's God who allows you to produce the crops, there's going to be a drought on the land. And until Israel wakes up and wants to worship God again, God isn't going to send any rain. And Elijah disappeared for three and a half years. Three and a half years later, God said, okay, the people of Israel are ready to hear from me now. Go back. 
Tell them it was me. Tell them I'm going to turn the faucet back on, but that they need to start worshiping me. So in 1 Kings 17, 18, we follow this journey. We end up on Mount Carmel with Elijah. Elijah tells Ahab, God's going to show up and prove that it's him who provides rain or withholds rain. So God's going to move, and then everyone's going to worship him. And God moved, but everyone didn't worship him. And like on the greatest ministry day of Elijah's life, his heart was crushed. And he could barely hear from God what God was saying for his future. That's where we enter the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 46. One verse in 1 Kings 18 and then into Kings, 1 Kings 19. And we'll be here for the next two weeks. Here's what we read. It says, the power of the Lord came on Elijah. This is after God moved powerfully, but nobody still wanted to follow him. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them, meaning I'm going to kill you. Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life when he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat, broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again to rest. Let me restate our reality this morning. Sometimes, as in the case of Elijah, the power of God is just not enough to convince the people of God to have hope in the plan of God. If that's where your life is right now, you're struggling, trying to figure out if God has hope for your future, this message is for you because we meet a man who is in that exact same place, but he gets out of it. What do we learn from Elijah? We're going to learn several things. Today, we're going to try to learn the foundation of what we learn from how we get to this point. Next week, we're really going to learn how we get out of this point by just following the narrative. But two pretty powerful things I need you to realize today, because I, I, I want to validate what you're going through while giving you hope for what you can run to. Here's the first thing you need to know. When it comes to Elijah, when it comes to you, number one, the struggle's real. Like the struggle is real. Elijah wasn't in any sin. Elijah wasn't just careless. Elijah just wasn't having a bad day. Elijah was struggling in life. Elijah was struggling to the point where he didn't know if he could go on. Elijah's struggle was real. And for some of you, the struggle is real. I mean, this struggle is so real that it's like a, a bitmoji. Now, I texted Danielle a few weeks ago on a really busy day at work, and I was like, hey, how's things going today? And her little bitmoji dressed in Royals clothes was like, the struggle is real. Like, we know this phrase. We know the struggle. We know what it feels like to be overwhelmed for a moment, for a day, for a week. But some of you have been overwhelmed for longer than you can remember. You can't remember a time you weren't overwhelmed. So the struggle's real. But I looked at this phrase, sometimes the power of God isn't enough for the people of God to know the plan of God. And I thought, man, that's a strong statement. Is that a true statement? I mean, can you really have the power of God present in your life, but still not really hear from them? So I thought, let's fact check this statement. Is this true? Can you really have the power of God without being able to have hope in the plan of God? So let's just fact check it. Is the power of God present? 1846, the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way 
to Jezreel. You tell me, is the power of God present? Yes or no? Clearly. Fact check number one, the power of God is present. It's not just around Elijah, it's on Elijah. The power of the Lord came on Elijah. The power of God is present. However, fact check number two, the picture of the prophet's a problem. I mean, when you read what he was going through, this phrase checks out. Sometimes the power of God just isn't enough for the people of God to have hope in the plan of God. Look at verses three through five. Look at the picture of this man who has the power of God on his life according to 1 Kings 18.46. Verse 3. What does this man look like? Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. Sometimes the power of God isn't quite enough for the people of God to have hope in the plan of God. Did you see the picture of the prophet Elijah? Did you see who he was? I put it up in a chart just so you can see it in case it didn't line out real clearly in your head. Did you see the picture of this man who had the power of God on his life? He was afraid. He was on the run. He didn't just feel alone. He was alone. He wanted to die. He felt a generational curse. He prayed something like this to the Lord. It always works out like this for people like me. God, it always works out for, for people like, like my great-granddad, my granddad. For him, it wasn't family as much as it was nation. Like, God, it just, it always works out for people like me this way. I feel like I'm cursed. And he was exhausted. This is the picture of the prophet that the power of God was upon. But for some of you, this is not a picture of Elijah. It's a picture of you. Like, this is you. You're fighting back tears as we speak because you could put your name in the top blank. You're trying not to distract people around you, but your heart is so full right now because you're thinking, like, my God, that's, that's me. That describes me this week. That describes me this month. That describes me this year. Man, I'm living in fear. I don't know where I'm going. I feel like I'm alone. I don't necessarily want to die, but I don't know if I can keep living. I feel like it just always works out this way. Everyone I know seems to be heading this direction. And, I'm, and Christian, I'm just exhausted, man. And here's the deal. If you, if you don't feel like that, you know someone who does. So if you're here today in a posture of strength, you need to think about who in your life looks like that. Because maybe this message isn't for you. Maybe it's for them, but you have to hear it and give it to them. I've had two teenagers in the last three weeks at one of our high schools that, is, that have ended their lives because they probably felt like that. Every one of us has someone at our office, someone on our street, someone in our school who feels that way. And if it's not you, we have to be aware of who it is so that we can do something about it. Because that's a snapshot of, of suffering. Like that's the picture of Elijah. Those are all just symptoms of spiritual suffering. A picture of Elijah is a snapshot of suffering. And that's exactly where some of you are today. You're suffering. And I want you to know I hurt for you. Like all week long as I've prepared this message, I prayed, Lord, help the people who when I put that slide up are going to feel like they've had a knife put in their heart because it so spiritually identifies them. Some of you are here and you feel that way. And I want you to know I hurt for you, but I have hope for you. 
I hurt for you, but I have hope for you because I've been where you are. And, and I know that a snapshot of suffering can turn into a season of hope. I know you can come out of what you're going to come out of. Next week, I'm going to take you into my counselor's office. A year ago this week, when I walked in and handed him a picture of my life that was a snapshot of suffering and just said, I think I need some help. And I'm going to give you the plan that he gave me over the course of a year. Next week, I'm going to take you to tell Dan. I'm going to take you to an ancient city gate where Elijah would have stood on the stones that we stood on in July. And he would have prophesied to the king of Israel some of these words. And I want to show you how God reminded me as I stood where Elijah stood on the very ancient stones where Elijah would have stood. I want to show you how God reminded me. Christian, look how far you've come in nine months. Remember last fall when you were suffering so bad? Man, isn't it great how I've healed you? I want to show you that as we walk through the life of Elijah, because a snapshot of suffering can become a picture of healing, not just for Elijah, but for you. Like, here's one of the key things you need to understand about Elijah. Elijah was not alone in experiencing his spiritual suffering, and neither are you. I mean, not only do you identify with Elijah today, you probably identify with someone sitting in the row you're in, or the row behind you, or the row in front of you, in this very room. And when we look at scripture, we see a lot of people like Elijah who had very difficult seasons of suffering. Do any of you play fantasy football? Like right now, are you in a fantasy football league? Is it going well? I played two years of fantasy football. The first year I won, and it was the greatest thing I'd ever experienced because I felt like I had something to do with it. The next year, all my guys got hurt in like the first two or three weeks. It was the year that Peyton Manning sat out a season, and I hated every week of the NFL football season because I felt like a loser, and I pledged to never play again because Daniel just said, if you're going to be like that, you can't play. You can't play. So I've never played anymore fantasy football because I got so into it. But if I were to play like fantasy Bible, like, like if I could have a fantasy Bible team, like a fantasy scripture team, let me tell you who I would pick to be on my team. Like if I was just looking for spiritual points, here's who I would pick. I, I've, I've found what I call the magnificent seven. Like if I was starting a fantasy Bible team, I'd want to have Job on my team because this guy can like endure anything. I'd want to have Moses on my team because I don't know how many points you get for like plagues and miracles, but he had a lot of them. I, I'd want Samson on my team. Because Samson could like, he gets sometimes got enough points to, to defeat an entire team all by himself. I'd want David on my team because he killed a giant and was a king. I'd want Solomon on my team because he'd always have the answer and the money to help. He, he was really smart. He was really rich. I'd want Jonah on my team just because I, I just want to hear what it was like to live inside a fish for a few days. Um, and certainly I'd want Elijah on my team. Like, like these are my guys. If, if I could walk with them spiritually, it's like, man, that's a good team to be on. But do you know these magnificent seven could just as easily be called the miserable seven? Do you know that every one of those men in scripture at one point wanted to die or ask God to kill him? Job got so down in his suffering that he said, God, I wish the day my mother had me, I would have been stillborn. I wish I would have never been born. My life has been so hard. Moses asked God to kill him because he said, God, the leadership you've asked me to provide in my business is too much for me. I can't do it. Samson actually died committing suicide. Took out a lot of people with him, but he killed himself after a life that did not meet expectations. David, when he was on the run from Saul, asked that God would kill him. And when he'd fallen into sin, said, God, I understand if you want to take me out. Solomon in his journal of Ecclesiastes said, I hated my life and I wanted to die. Jonah jumped overboard from a ship trying to kill himself. He wasn't aiming for the fish. He was aiming for death. 
And we read Elijah today say, God, I can't live anymore. I'm too tired. You know, we look at scripture and you say, Christian, aren't these guys supposed to be our spiritual superheroes? They are. Not because they had perfect lives that were always blessed, but because when suffering came, they made it through. Like, we identify with these people not because of their perfection, but because of their suffering. We look at their lives and think, man, I feel like that too. If the Bible was filled with people who were always blessed, always strong, always had good days, never had a bad day, never had a setback, we would never be able to identify with them. But because of the honesty of Scripture, normal people that have normal problems just like we do, the honesty of Scripture leads us to hope. The fact that they got through it tells us we can get through it. So sometimes the power of God isn't enough to help the people of God have hope in the plan of God. Job had that day. Moses had that day. Samson had that day. David and Solomon had that day. Jonah and Elijah had that day. You may be having that day, that week, that month, that year, that decade, but it doesn't mean that you can't turn your moment of suffering into a season of hope. Say, how do we do that? What did Elijah do? What did Job and Moses and Samson and David and Solomon and Jonah, what did they do? Well, they realized, number two, they all realized that the supernatural is in reach. Like the struggle is real, but the supernatural is within reach. Like the struggle might be on your left hand, but the supernatural is within reach on your right hand. Sometimes, though, you just have to let go of the struggle to grab hold of the supernatural. Like the trapeze artist that you see at the circus, you've got to leave one before you can connect to other. But I promise you this morning, the supernatural is within reach. It was for Elijah. Look what happened in verse five and six. He gets tired, he runs away. He finds himself sleeping under this bush. Then halfway verse five, it says, all at once an angel touched him. I mean, if you have your pen, underline or circle that verse. An angel touched him. If that's not supernatural, I don't know what is. An angel touched him. So you say, Christian, I need some supernatural help. I need an angel to touch me. I'm going to show you how you can put yourself in a position to have that happen. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. An angel touched him and said, listen, I've got what you need to make it your next step in life. When Elijah had no natural strength left, the supernatural kicked in. But Elijah had to do something to put himself in that position. You see, the supernatural is within reach. However, and I want you to hear the however because it's for you today. Until you're ready to leave your situation, you're not ready for the supernatural. Elijah was not going to experience the supernatural on top of Carmel. He had to run. And he had to run fast, and he had to run long, and he had to run hard to where he knew he could meet God. And he didn't make it all the way there, but on the way there, God kind of met him halfway and said, I will help you. I don't know if you ever look at the maps in the back of your Bible, but you should. Because if you do, they can like, actually help you understand Bible stories much better. So we hear that Elijah's on Mount Carmel. If you see that upside down teardrop kind of in the middle of the map, you see the Sea of Galilee there. If you go straight left from the Sea of Galilee, straight above Megiddo, you would see Mount Carmel if it was identified on this map. It's not, but this is one I took from the back of Bible. So this one's probably in your Bible. That's where Elijah started. If you go down to the southern end of the Dead Sea and you hang a left, you see Beersheba. That's where he stopped and left his servant. And then it said it went a, he went a day into the desert. Say, so Christian, how long is that run? It's over 100 miles. You ever run a marathon? Before of those. And that's not flat ground. And he wasn't wearing his Asics. 
He had to completely remove himself from the situation that he was in. You say, where was he running to? He was running towards Sinai. And he didn't get even halfway to Sinai, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. He was running to the place where he knew God appeared strongest and last in Israel's history. He was running to Sinai, and he didn't get halfway there before he collapsed, but God met him halfway. And as we learn next week, helped him get the rest of the way on the journey. As I was talking to Danielle, my wife, about this message this week, and I said, I'm struggling with whether or not this message is going to really be impactful for our people. She said, why? Here was my answer for her. I said, my fear is that our people are not miserable enough to leave their situation. My fear is that people understand they're in a situation that's unsustainable. And if they stay in it, their marriage is not going to work. If they stay in it, their kids are probably not going to love God. If they stay in it, they may lose their family. If they stay in it, they're going to have a physical or an emotional breakdown. But because they're not sure what's next, they just, they're not miserable enough yet to step out and pursue God. They're not like Elijah. They won't leave everything behind and just run to God. See, as a pastor, and I think all of our pastoral staff would tell you this, we always get called after things are too broken to be fixed, for the most part. People rarely call us during a crisis, hardly ever call us before it, even though they know it's coming. They wait till it's totally broken, and then they come to the church and they say, can you help us? We say, we can try, but boy, if we'd have started six months ago, man, there was a really good plan that, that we could have we helped you with if you would have just run to God. Some of you are in here today and you say, my situation's unsustainable, but I'm unwilling to leave it because I don't, know, I don't know what's next. You won't meet the supernatural if you just stay right where you are. But if you will exhaust your natural energy to figure out a way to get to God daily on a consistent basis and say, God, help me, I believe like this angel showed up, God will show up in your life and give you just enough energy to keep going to whatever your next step is. See, here was Elijah's dilemma. Elijah's situation was too dangerous spiritually for him to stay, and he couldn't stay there. They were going to kill him. But his spiritual future would require too much energy to get to. So some of us say, I don't know that I can get all the way there spiritually, so I'm not going to move anywhere. Not Elijah. Elijah said, man, I can't get all the way there, but I can get closer. So like, I'm going to go till I can't go anymore. I don't know that I can be all the way, I don't know that I can get all the way to where God wants me to be, but I can get a whole lot closer than I am now, so I'm just going to run. And he started running to God. Some of you are in here today, and you know where you need to be spiritually, and you're not there. And you say, Christian, it would take so much to get to where I need to be. Just take one step. Just take one step. Just take two steps. Don't get here tomorrow, but don't stay here today. Because you already know you can't make it long-term in this place today. You say, all right, you got me. That's me. So key question, looking at the life of Elijah. I know I need to run, but I know I need to hear from God. How, how do I hear from God when life hurts too bad to hear? What did Elijah do? He did two things. What did Elijah do to begin when life was too hard to hear from God? What did Elijah begin to do? He did two things that we see today and then next week, we'll finish the narrative of how he got healthy again. But here's how he survived. Number one, step number one, he started tuning out the wrong voices. He started tuning out the wrong voices. On his greatest ministry day ever, it took one negative, critical comment to reach his ears to just destroy his heart. And I don't know if you realized it, but every day since the creation of the world, there have been two voices speaking into every heart that's ever lived. There's been the voice of God saying, draw near to me. Draw near to me. 
follow me. I got you. And then there's been the voice of everything else that's been saying, do your own thing. You don't have to do that. You can't trust God. That's going to take too far. That's over 100 miles away. You can't do that. Every day since the beginning of creation, there have been two voices speaking into your heart. One is always saying, run to God. The other one is saying, everything but that. Paul said it this way in Galatians 5, 16 and 17 to one of the first churches that he ever started as he was trying to help them understand how to follow Jesus. Paul said, you got to learn to hear these voices. So I say, walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh and they're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. So Paul says, you got to learn how to tune out the wrong voices. You got to learn to hear what is not Run to God. So you have God today whispering, run to me. And then you have this voice saying, but how will you pay the mortgage? You have God saying, run to me. But you have this voice saying, well, what will people think of you? You have God saying, run to me. And you have this voice saying, we don't have time to run to anything. You've got these two voices. Elijah, after seeing God move and the power of God on his life, began to hear chirps in his ears from Jezebel and his friends. And he said, you know what? I got to shut them up. I cannot listen to the negative voices anymore. You say, Christian, how do I learn to start tuning out the wrong voices? Well, number one, you have to identify them. And they can come from a variety of places. I mean, when we just look at the life of Jesus, we see Jesus listen to all kinds of different wrong voices. We see during his temptation, Jesus actually heard from the voice of Satan that was tempting him to sin. Maybe today God is whispering in your ear, run to God. And and there's some spiritual voice in your head saying, no, don't run to God. During his wilderness temptation, Jesus had to learn how to tune out the voice of Satan in his ear so that he could follow God. But it wasn't always that way. Sometimes he had to learn to tune out his friends. At one point in his life, Jesus said, I feel like God's really calling me to do this. And his best friend, Peter, stepped up and said, no, 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 no. God's not calling you to do that. He looked at Peter and said, you need to shut up. Get behind me, Satan. He didn't think Peter was Satan, but he said, I know what God has called me to do. So any voice contrary to that is not of God. And Jesus had to tell his best friend, you're wrong. He had to tell his friends, I know what God is calling me to do. And if you all aren't in agreement with that, I'll go on alone. You might have to sever some friendships. At one point, it was his family. Jesus had been doing so much ministry that his mom and brothers were worried about him. So it says they came to, took, they came to take control of them for he feared maybe he was losing his mind. And someone said, your mom and brothers are outside. And they said, you need to go home. And Jesus was like, tell my mom and brothers, I'm doing exactly what God called me to do. So I can't go home with them. Your family may mean well. But if God is saying, go here, you have to learn to respectfully and gently help them understand that as well so you can move with God. And then often it was just the surrounding voices of culture, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the laws. And for us, that surrounding culture so often gets in through social media, through news media, through talk radio, through office gossip. We just have all these voices that we just need to learn to shut down. So that we can hear from God. You say, I can't hear from God. It's because you have all the other voices turned up so loud. God is speaking, but you got to turn down everything else so that you can hear him. Learn to identify those voices. And then number two, you got to escape them. you got to get away. You might have to go home today and delete some phone numbers from your phone because they're the wrong voice in your life. Some of you might have so many wrong phone numbers in your phone, you need to change your phone number. Because everyone you know is the wrong voice speaking into your life right now. Some of you need to go home and just shut down the social media stuff. Just take all the apps off your phone. 
Quit listening to talk radio on the news. All it does is put you in a bad mood. Watching CNN, Fox, MSNBC, all of it just puts you in a bad mood. And it keeps you from clearly hearing the voice of God. Listen, some of you, if you continue talking to that person that you're talking to, you're going to have an affair. Listen to me. Let me say it real clear. If you keep confiding in that person you're confiding in, you're going to have an affair. You're going to cheat on your spouse. You know it and everyone else knows it. It only ends in one good place if you don't cut it off. Some of you parents are watching your kids do things that are unhealthy and you're thinking they're just teenagers. Listen to me, parents. The habits of teenagers become the addictions and abuses of adults. Step in. Step in. Pull them out. Switch their school. Change their friends. You are the parents. Do something. Do something. Listen to me. Some of you are working jobs right now that if you don't figure out how to change your career, you're going to lose your family. They've already told you they're out if you don't make a change. And you're thinking, well, if I can just figure... No, no, no. Listen, you're going to lose your family. We have to learn how to escape the wrong voices so that we can lean into God. And if we will do that, step number two, then we need to learn how to trim the schedule back enough that we have time for God. I told you several years ago about a couple that I was counseling who just were so busy, both of them working full-time jobs that when they finally had their child that they just kind of passed off one to another as one of them worked an early shift, one of them worked an afternoon shift. They never had time for each other. As I counseled them on the brink of divorce, I said, you all need to get away. Can you take a trip and get away? Like, can you just shut everything down and get away? Neither one of them were willing to. I found out after they got divorced between the two of them, they had eight months of paid time off banked that they could have taken, that they ended up taking to process the divorce and to sell the house and each move into their apartments. They ended up using all of it, but they were unwilling to trim back their schedule. Some of you need to take tomorrow off and go talk to a counselor tomorrow. You've got paid time off. Some of you need to take a week off and just every morning go on a walk with your spouse and say, what are we going to do? Can we make it through this thing? I want to make it through this thing. Do you want to make it through this thing? Some of you need to pull your kids out of school for two or three days. And just say, hey, we're going to go on a trip. We're just going to go camp out for a couple days. We're going to go fishing. We're going to talk about these friends of yours because I'm afraid you're throwing your life away. You just need to trim the schedule back. Elijah ran to God and he had nothing on his calendar except how to find God and hear what God's plan was for him. The reality is, is you, you will not experience change if you're not willing to change. I mean, that's like one of the most oxymoronic statements that you'll ever hear. But it's so true. I, I, I meet so many people who say, Christian, I need a change in my life. But they're unwilling to change anything. It's like, I need change, but I won't change. It doesn't work that way. I was getting new brake pads put on this week at Meineke off of 291 North. I was waiting to pay my bill while the guy was processing the final paperwork. And there was a commercial on the History Channel for a new show about Winston Churchill that's coming out. I'm a history buff. I love World War II stuff. So I'm, I'm glued on this television in, in this new Winston Churchill show. And it shows Churchill sitting in a room with all of his advisors and they're talking about trying to negotiate a deal with Hitler. Churchill's just come to power and he's sitting with all of his advisors and he slams his fist on the table and they all go quiet. And he looked at the men sitting around his table and he said, do you realize you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth? Like, do you realize you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth? I don't know if Churchill ever said that or not, but I saw that quote and I thought that's either great writing or that's good history. Because that's a great quote. Some of you are trying to reason with a tiger while your head is in its mouth. 
You say, I know my current situation is destroying my marriage, destroying my health. It's destroying my spirituality. It's destroying my children. I'm not even happy anymore. I know that. But I'm going to stay in it until I can figure it out. You're not going to figure it out until you get out of it. You step away to see clearly. You say, and do what? Trust. You trust that after you do everything naturally that God shows up and one of his angels says, hey, let's go to the next step now. I just have to trust that God will never leave us and forsake us because he told us that. But we got to run to him. You see, it's interesting. When we look at the life of Isaiah, Elijah, we realize that surrender is the first step in spiritual rescue for those who are hurting. You say, what did Elijah do to put himself in a position to have God help him? He said this, I can't do it anymore. That's what he did. How did Elijah put himself in a position to hear from God? He threw his hands up and said, God, I can't do it anymore. God, I look at my current situation. It's unsustainable. I look at where I want to be. I don't know how I can get there. But I know this, I can't do it anymore. It's interesting that we teach kids this theology in church, but we don't believe it as adults. Any of you grow up singing the song, Jesus loves me? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are, what is it? We are, we are weak, but he is strong. We teach our kids, you're weak, but God is strong. I remember my little Sunday school class, they they always used to make us go, we are weak, but he is strong. And you know what we like to think as adults? God is strong, but I'm strong too. And together we'll do this. Listen, God doesn't need you to be his spotter. God doesn't need you to set over your life and say, listen, God, you lift as much as you can. And when you don't have it, I got, I got you. I'll get the rest. God doesn't need you to be his spotter. He needs your surrender. He needs you to look at your life and say, I can't lift that. I can't lift that one. I'm not even going to lay down under the bar. I can't lift it. I surrender. I'm out. I'm weak. You're strong. I'm weak. And when you get to the point of surrender where your only answer is to run to God and to let him show you what he will do next, you know you're at a good place to let the hurt fade and to let the voice of God begin to come in. Sometimes the power of God doesn't seem enough for the people of God to have hope in the plan of God. The struggle's real, but the supernatural is within reach. And if we run to it, I believe God will speak. We pray with me today.